Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the corporate price gouging and massive profits happening under the cover of widespread inflation, all in the run-up to the midterm elections, in which the GOP is running cover for corporations and blaming Democrats for price hikes. Clips today are from the PBS NewsHour, More Perfect Union, The Intelligence, The Majority Report, The Damage Report, All In With Chris Hayes, Democracy Now!, and Trey Crowder, with an additional members-only clip from No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen. And don't forget, the midterms are just one week away, so be sure to take a minute to check out our Midterms Minute resources in the show notes. With one week to go, we've curated the easiest one-stop shop places to donate and have the biggest possible impact during this final week, as well as resources to persuade someone you know to use their vote as a tool in a theory of change. Remember, voting is not enough, so get involved and help get out the vote. Inflation, inflation. Everybody's talking about it. Longtime liberal activist Robert Reich. Corporations are raising prices even as they rake in record profits. Prices at the pump have gone up. Why? Well, let me let me give you a hint. Senator Elizabeth Warren. This isn't about inflation. This is about price gouging. This is a charge that pops up in lots of places, even on my Twitter feed. So do the facts justify the outrage? Well, you've heard the standard causes of COVID inflation. Government stimulus money, a tight labor market driving up wages, clogged supply chains, imports anchored offshore. And now to top it off, Russia's invasion of Ukraine goosing oil, gas and wheat prices. But if all this explains an inflation rate that's just reached 10% for businesses, the producer price index, how come profits have risen even more? Over the past year, companies' net margins have risen to record highs. And net margins are expected to rise again over the next year. Wall Street Journal reporter Dion Rabowin. Nearly 100 of the biggest U.S. publicly traded companies booked 2021 profit margins that were at least 50% higher than their 2019 levels. And 2019 was pre-pandemic. The economy solid, inflation low. So why the profit hike? The CEO of Kroger recently said, A little bit of inflation is always good in our business. Lindsay Owens runs a progressive economic think tank that scours the earnings calls corporations hold for stock analysts and investors. Like this one from Constellation Brands, which sells beer, wine, and spirits. We're going to look at this on a market-by-market basis, brand-by-brand basis, and we'll, we'll take as much pricing as we think the consumer can absorb. One of my favorite examples is Tyson Foods. Purveyor of one out of every five pounds of beef, chicken, and pork sold in the U.S. Here's Tyson's chief financial officer on their latest quarterly results. Our pricing actions led to approximately $2.1 billion in sales and price mix benefit during the quarter which offset the higher cost of goods sold of $1.6 billion. In other words, says Owens, Our pricing is taking into account the cost of raw materials and the cost of labor, but more than offsetting it. And that more than offsetting it is that additional profit that they're able to bring in. But profits sank when COVID hit, say companies like Tyson. This is just making up for lost time. Nothing but an extreme short-term business cycle. Capitalism requires greed to run. Economist Noah Smith. Corporations are always greedy. Their greed dial is always set to absolute maximum. And the idea that ameliorating greed would have any effect on inflation is wrong. 
And I made fun of it by making the following chart. Smith, a liberal, mocks the idea that newfound greed explains the inflation surge with a tongue-in-cheek greed index chart. And I labeled the rises in inflation as uh, rising greed and the drops in inflation as falling greed. Which would imply rising corporate generosity. The reason this is a joke is because the big drop in inflation in the 80s would have to be caused by surges in corporate altruism, the altruism of Gordon Gecko and the 80s people. Greed is good. Yes, that Gordon right. Gecko. Greed works. So back to the original question. If corporate America is no greedier than ever, how come profits have soared? What we're seeing in this moment is really when that profit maximization and opportunity collides. And the opportunity is the cover of inflation. Aha, the opportunity caused by the pandemic. And when companies like Tyson blame higher costs, as their CEO has... Labor costs have been up 20%, cattle costs are up 22%, and freight up 32%. We're not asking customers or the consumer ultimately to pay for our inefficiency. Uh, we're asking them to pay for inflation. Woe is me. We have no choice but to raise our prices. Our labor costs are going up. Our inputs, our inputs. But in reality, companies aren't being forced to raise prices because of inflation. They're raising prices because they can. And why can they now? With so little resistance, I asked Rebowen. Inflation sort of disguises these price increases. When prices for everything around you are rising, it's much easier for companies to raise their prices and not experience that consumer blowback. The point is, when consumers come to expect inflation, the process can begin to feed on itself. Companies know that consumers expect higher prices right now, and they're really seeing how far they can push that. And says Robert Reich, Wall Street is egging them on, saying, Look, this is a great time to raise your profit margins. And of course, those Wall Streeters are saying the same thing to everybody else in the industry. But in a competitive market economy, won't newcomers emerge offering lower prices? That's a lot less likely these days, say Rebowen and Reich. 75% of all American industries have become more concentrated in the last two decades. Most are now dominated by a handful of corporations that coordinate prices and production. This is true of banks, broadband, pharmaceutical companies, airlines, meat packers. You got four basic meat packing facilities and you pay a hell of a lot more because there's only four. Now, it's not literally just four, but four do dominate the market. And it's not just meat. See what's happening with ocean carriers. During the pandemic, about half a dozen foreign-owned companies raised prices by as much as 1,000% and made record profits. The traditional check on consolidation, of course, is antitrust enforcement. Reich worked at the Federal Trade Commission in the 1970s. Antitrust used to be a real thing. But since the early 1980s, antitrust has taken a back seat. In fact, some would say it's been thrown out of the car altogether. Uh, and big companies now routinely have the power to raise prices. Customers will note that there is almost an exact price matching among all major so-called competitors because they're not really competing. So what is to be done? Tonight, I'm announcing a crackdown on those companies overcharging American businesses and consumers. A crackdown on the shipping industry by regulators. If they identify that there is market manipulation or price gouging going on. The president's national economic advisor, Brian Deese. 
And the agencies have now committed to partnering where the Department of Justice has significantly more enforcement resources and investigatory resources. And the administration says it's working to lessen concentration in the food sector, too. You need scale to be uh, competitive and it takes capital to get to scale. So the USDA is actually right now working with smaller processors in rural areas across the country to try to give them grants, give them low-cost capital so that they can scale, they can get into the game more quickly and easily. As the meat industry points out, though, it's been concentrated for decades. Decades of low inflation, even in meat. In the end, this is any administration's challenge. To affect real change amidst economic forces bigger than any of us. Meanwhile, with company costs rising at about 10%, corporate profits are rising at 12.4%. That extra 2.5% or so seems to be at least part of the inflation we're all paying for now. Gas prices are going back up, and people want to know why. They were already high, they started to come back down, but now they're climbing again. And we hear a lot of different reasons as to why that is. Little bitty stickers that show up on gas pumps all over the country with a picture of Joe Biden pointing to the price, saying, I did that. So what's really going on? At the beginning of the pandemic, the price for a barrel of oil went to zero. People were staying home, they weren't driving, so demand for gas was really low. A bunch of people bought up oil when it was low so that they could sell when it was high in the future when people started driving again. But speculation in the oil market became a huge problem. The oil market went into backwardation. That means the spot price for a barrel of oil was higher than the futures price. In other words, if you bought a barrel of oil today, you would pay more for it than if you promise to buy one in the future. We typically expect the price for goods and services to go up over time, so this was a really bad sign. Companies that produce oil were enjoying record profits when prices started soaring, and despite supply constraints, American oil companies didn't want to increase production. That would mean building new rigs and drilling new wells, which is expensive. They were unwilling to make that investment and spend that initial money because it would cut into their profit margins. They also expected the price for a barrel of oil to go back down in the future for a few reasons. If another variant hit and people stopped driving again, the price for a barrel of oil would go back down when demand for gas went back down. They were also worried that the people hoarding the barrels of oil from the beginning of the pandemic would decide to sell. When those barrels of oil hit the market, that would increase supply and drive prices down. They also foresaw Biden tapping the emergency reserves, which would increase domestic supply of oil too. But this is really a story about greed. With prices so high that they're enjoying record profits despite not producing any more oil while we're paying an arm and a leg to fill up our tanks, they could actually produce less oil and make more profit than they usually make. And that's exactly what they did. Oil company executives promised their shareholders 2% growth, and no matter what, they promised to not increase their production. They want the oil companies to prolong the extraction of oil from their reserves so that they can continue to profit year over year. The CEO of a major oil company, Pioneer Natural Resources, Scott Sheffield, said whether it's $150, $200, or $100 for a barrel of oil, we're not going to change our growth plans. In August, Exxon alone reported a quarterly profit of $17.9 
billion. That is the highest quarterly profit reported by any oil company in history. Chevron reported $11.6 billion, Shell reported $11.47 billion, and BP reported $8.45 billion in quarterly profits. If they were raising prices to just account for the economic hits they took during the pandemic, constrained supply, supply chain issues, they would have consistent revenue and consistent profits. But instead, they raise prices for far more than necessary. That's why they're enjoying record profits. They were capitalizing on constrained supply at the beginning, but now they're keeping up with their price gouging to get even richer. So what are they doing with all of this additional profit? Stock buybacks. They are treating the stock market like it's a casino that they're gambling in, but they also get to be the dealers. Stock buybacks are when a company buys up their own stock, leaving less shares on the market for other people to buy. This inflates the earnings per share metric. Higher earnings per share makes the stock look good on Wall Street. Existing shareholders benefit from this because it increases the value of the stock they already own. ExxonMobil announced plans to buy up $30 billion of its own stock by the end of 2023. Chevron increased its top-end buyback guidance by $15 billion per year. But what would a responsible company do with all of this extra revenue if not buy back their own stock? They could have spent it on research and development, invested in new infrastructure and technologies. They could have lowered prices for consumers or... I don't know, is there anything wrong with the energy industry? Oil companies are literally destroying our planet. They should be investing in transforming our energy sector so we're not so reliant on carbon-emitting fossil fuels that are bringing our planet closer to two degrees of warming, which would be a mass extinction event. We need our energy sector to make this shift so we can literally survive. Greedy oil companies are not only forcing us to pay prices we can hardly afford, they're jeopardizing our planet's future as well. There are a couple of ways of looking at the economy right now. And increasingly, the lens you pick depends on your party. On the economy, as in all matters, the partisan divide has been getting bigger over the years, and studies have shown there's now greater polarization in perception about the economy than there used to be. So when a Republican is in the White House, Democrat voters are more pessimistic about the economy and vice versa. And so if you look at polls right now, you know, an overwhelming majority of Republicans, 90% plus, think the economy is in a bad state. For Democrats, it's closer to the 50-60% level. In every election, the two parties trade barbs over who would be best for the economy. Republicans currently have the lead. In a Gallup poll released this month, 50% of adults trust them more, compared with 40% for Democrats. That's the widest gap in 30 years. For those respondents to The Economist poll who said that the economy or inflation was their top concern and also predicted they were definitely or probably going to vote, about two-thirds said they'd vote for a Republican for the House of Representatives. But for people who put any other issue as the most concerning, Democrats led by 18 points. So it's clear why Democrats are keen to change the conversation to literally anything else. But the next month might not make that easy for them. So the rate-setting committee of the, of the Federal Reserve will be meeting exactly a week before the, the midterm election. 
And so it's all but guaranteed that, you know, on November 2nd, there will be another jumbo rate rise of three quarters of a percentage point, the fourth consecutive one. So that will obviously be, um, you know, big news and, and will have an impact on, on the market. And though the markets expect a rate rise, they'll be looking to what the Fed signals for the future and might react dramatically. But other signals may be more concerning to voters. I think the price in the economy that matters most of all to people is the price of gas. We know that the OPEC production cut is going to hit next month. If oil miraculously stabilizes and even declines a little bit, that obviously will be good news for the Democrats. If it starts flirting with $100 a barrel again, that would be very, very bad news for the Democrats, very good news for the Republicans. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention. And unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. A couple of days ago, Neil Kash- uh, Kashkari, who's the, the CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, sort of like, I think, gave a little bit away of the game of what the Fed is doing. I mean, he's generally like a, a so-called dove when it comes to inflation. Now he's become a little bit hawkish. So much of this is really about like our government refusing to take steps that could deal with inflation. I even think like the Biden administration has some arrows in its quiver to deal with inflation, but they don't want to because of the nature of our system in this country. They don't want to hurt and corporations and, and, and wealthy people really control the way that the government reacts to these things. Here is Katie Porter arguing about what is contributing to inflation. With a friend of show, I feel comfortable saying, Mike Consul, who is testifying. According to this chart, what is the biggest driver of inflation during the pandemic? The blue is the, the dark blue is the recent period. It would be corporate profits. And what is that percentage? It is 54%. And that number does stay that level of high if you update that number to more recent numbers as well. So over half of the increased prices people are paying are coming from increases in corporate profits. Yes, the unit price index is reflected in corporate profits as opposed to other costs. And how does that compare to historically, to other periods of inflation or over other periods of economic time? As reflected there in another analysis, it is significantly higher in this recovery, 11.5%. And what is it today? Uh, 53%. So I want to make sure everyone in America understands this chart. What is a unit labor cost? 
the cost of wages and an associated right. work cost. So we could just wages. What is a non-labor input cost? Uh, a variety of things, including um, maintenance and, in, and investments. Okay, so I, I have to buy the buy the stuff to make the widget. I have to have a factory. I have to keep the lights on. I have to hire someone to make the widget. That's this stuff. And this is what I add on on top. Hold up that, that chart. And you'll see unit labor costs. Incredibly low relative to where uh, there has been in uh, on average, relatively speaking, in terms of what is contributing to the prices. Corporate profits, the biggest element of this. Not you, wage growth? <laughs> Kashkari, even in this uh, this Bloomberg piece, the inflation didn't come from the labor market. This inflation came from supply chains and energy com and commodities. He won't say corporate profits. Do we actually have a tight labor market? One way I would define tight labor market is labor is in a relatively strong position and their share of the pie is growing. Their share of the pie is shrinking. So I don't know. They don't want to point out what Katie Porter is pointing out here. We are looking at two different things that are happening. One is we have a massive disruption in our supply chain that is still rippling through the system. And two is corporations are taking this opportunity to price gouge. Mm -hmm. It's it, you, you can imagine being in a town or a city that has just been hit by a hurricane. Cost of everything is going to go up because maybe the bridge is out. They can't get, uh, they have to drive around the other way. Smaller trucks have to come. There's not as much uh, stuff at the, at the store. Maybe one of the stores, uh, the electricity broke and the refrigerators spoiled all the food and whatnot. And then on top of that, imagine that one of these shopkeepers is like, this is a good opportunity for me. I've got a lot of water in the basement, to be honest with you, but this is a good opportunity for me to charge four times what I normally charge for a bottle of water. <laughs> That's what's going on here. Yeah. That's what's going on. So what is the what is the 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 tool that the Fed could use in theory to discipline corporate America? Because all you hear Powell talking about is softening labor market conditions. And he has a like he's been raising interest rates uh, and that still hasn't made enough of a dent because the corporations are still gouging. And the way that they're doing this, because the Fed has limited tools, the way that the Fed is doing this is we are going to hurt workers enough that their consumer ability is so low that it convinces corporations that they can't now price gouge anymore. That's it's basically like saying we're going to use the workers not so much as a hammer but as like a like almost like a a, a tool to pry the corporate uh, grip around these prices loose the only other way that our government could address this and there's only so much that that can be done period taxation <laughs> no uh, and uh, well we can't do that not though. well you could tax corporate profits that would be helpful because if they're not going to see these profits 
and they're going to suffer in terms of volume sales, but they're not going to see the profits that are associated with it, right? The way that our government could do this, Richard Nixon did it very reluctantly, established price controls, wage controls too, but since wages are lagging behind about prices at this point, putting a wage and price control structure, imposing it 60 days, 90 days, 120 days, whatever it is, that should happen. Mm. Nixon pioneered this. I heard an interesting podcast about like where the idea came from that was floating around. It wasn't his idea. In fact, he ran on arguing against it. It was coming out of, you know, World War II. This was uh, in, into the Kennedy administration. This idea was kicking around and he didn't want this to happen. But he ended up realizing like this needs to happen. You could do price controls and you could do taxation. You'd have to go through Congress. You could do some type of windfall profit taxation, which would basically get rid of the incentive for creating such uh, massive profits. Mm. Rather, they'll, they'll make their money through volume instead of uh, huge price gouging markups. This is the dirty little secret. And so the Fed does the only thing it can do, which is to use basically citizens, workers in their capacity as consumers as basically a tool to sort of like slowly, gently convince corporate CEOs that they can't get away with price gouging. Yes, there are pressures that are naturally driving up the price of various goods and services. But that is not why we're in the crisis that we're in right now. And it's critically important that we understand that because again, as I said, if you're gonna solve this, like just trying to fix the supply chain or just trying to drive down wages is not gonna do anything about companies willingly jacking up the price with no relationship to the actual increase in their costs or anything like that. Um, and the issue, Jessica, is that when I, I don't know about you, but when I tweet about this, for instance, there are a ton of people who uh, I've noticed their breath all uh, sort of similarly stinks of CEO boot leather um, that say that this has nothing to do with corporations. Corporations have always wanted profit, so how could that be a new problem or anything like that? But I know that you obviously know a lot more about inflation, these sorts of things than me, so tell me what you think. That's a great chart. We actually uh, used that chart in a segment on the main show not too long ago. It's from the Economic Policy Institute. And the lighter blue bar at the bottom there shows what labor input costs used to be. So you can see how much that's changed. That bar, you know, it used to make up a much greater percentage of the, the input costs of corporations to produce a good. So wages are going down and they have been stagnant relative to inflation. Corporate profits are going up. That's largely because they're raising prices for far more than necessary, blaming things like supply chain issues. And that's why we have to raise prices. It would not be the case that corporate profits were skyrocketing if they were just accounting for additional costs because of instability, because of the pan pandemic or what have you. And then you have Jerome Powell saying stuff like, well, labor's a little bit too strong right now. The labor market's imbalanced. 
What he's really saying is we don't like that you're unionizing to demand higher wages because what's going on right now is people can't afford to live. And so for the solution to be to raise interest rates to make more people unemployed when corporations are experiencing record profits, it's so backwards. And it's good we have someone who's using these charts on the floor of Congress to make it really clear to people in power that that's precisely what's going on. Jessica, let's say that you were in charge and you accepted what Katie Porter was saying. What would you do to actually solve the problem that we're currently experiencing with inflation? Uh, specifically with gas prices and oil prices, like a lot of inflation is driven by high fuel costs because everywhere in the supply chain, you've got to transport goods from where they're created to where they're sold. It leads to price increases everywhere else. So let's start there. You need a negative externality tax, number one, because what they're selling is something that causes carbon emissions to go up, which is going to make our planet unlivable. And they're profiting off of it. A negative externality tax says, okay, you're selling a product that does damage to the environment and people around you. So guess what, you have to pay a part of those profits to address the damages done. But also you can put a cap on prices. You can put price controls on the cost of fuel in the country. You can also run a well paid government program to extract the domestic oil that people like Scott Sheffield, who's an oil CEO says, you know what, we promise steady returns to shareholders so that they can continue extracting oil in this country at the same rate and profiting. What we could do instead is take back a lot of those oil reserves on the permits on federal land that we gave to oil companies and say, you know what, we're gonna pay people as well paid public employees, employ the people who are unemployed in the country right now and extract that oil ourselves to bring prices back down and address supply chain issues. And then we wouldn't be so reliable on countries like Saudi Arabia. There are so many things you can do. Yeah. Taxing corporations is a big one. Yeah, every, every step of that, by the way, is at, at least if you believe when they say conservatives, when they say what their values are, what they should supposedly want. They would like the more jobs that they would produce. They would like the cheaper gasoline. They would love to stick a thumb in the eye supposedly of the Saudis. It's just so frustrating because this is a problem that we could actually fix. Biden is trying to do a little bit like releasing you know, gas from the National Reserve and stuff like that. But I don't see him talking about, like he, he's wagged his finger at CEOs and told them to stop raising prices. but. Why would they listen to that? How could that possibly solve the problem? And all of the stock buybacks they're doing. Like you have so much extra profit that you're buying back your own stock to inflate the, inflate the price and increase returns to shareholders. And if you're like a regular person in the United States who has to drive to work, what you said earlier, John, is huge. Why are these people listening to conservatives, listening to Fox News hosts, and even listening to people who aren't very clearly pointing out that corporate profits are the reason for inflation? It's like, would you trust a used car salesman who doesn't have your best interests in mind? No. So why are you trusting these people who are lining their pockets with lobbying money from fossil fuel companies? They don't have your best interests in mind either, but you just believe what they say like it's law. It's time for us to apply like this thinking we have in our personal lives of like, I don't trust people who clearly don't have my best interests in mind for politics. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, 
they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash left. I've watched Democrats struggle, I think, to find this message, and, and some do it better than others, is... You know, this question of weaving together this coalition of sort of solidarity across these lines of difference, which is that, like, it doesn't have to be zero sum. Like, I get the piece of pie, so you don't. Right. Um, and I think that's particularly relevant, it seems to me, in the case of this, these midterms. Right. Because at one level, it's like it feels existential from the level of democracy. And I think it is in some ways. But it's also like I was just talking to someone who works on a political campaign. who was talking about being in NYCHA houses, which is mm-hmm. the public housing here. And it's like he's talking to people that can't feed their kids. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what's front of mind for them. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question to you is, like, how how do you message around this stuff in an environment where people are focused on real, important, material, immediate concerns? And also those concerns are being used to kind of pry people in such a way that they tip the scales towards this political party that increasingly doesn't believe in democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think what's really important and the way that we message about this is talking about the racial realities of our economic issues and the economic realities of racial issues, hmm. that these are things are not uh, are not distinct or siloed. If you are a black American, if you are black or Latino in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you were disproportionately targeted for unjust incarceration. Then once that happened, particularly centered on the war on drugs, mm-hmm. then once you have that on your record, you cannot access housing in the same way. You cannot get employed in the same way. You you have all these structural barriers that really funnel you into being trapped in poverty. Uh, when it talks about inflation, when we talk about redline, when we talk about who can get a mortgage and who can't, right. how it's 10 times harder to be poor in America or to be working class in America and that and how that divide is growing. All of these things are very interconnected and they want us to think that they're very separate, that it's either or. And even when we talk about issues like inflation, a lot of this has to do with the 
massive consolidation of our markets and corporate greed. Our inflation is not going up due to government policies. Inflation is going up due to Wall Street decisions. And the idea that they can just squeeze us for every penny that we're worth. And we can also say that and acknowledge the fact that that's impacting some communities more than others. And that, I think, is how we can really emphasize this message. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it's just really important to, again, center this fact that this idea that it's either or is very dangerous. And the idea that emphasizing social equity is somehow a detriment to our democracy is playing into the hands of the folks that don't want us to talk about either. Look, we need a functioning democracy in order to deliver the economic goods to the people. Um, I'm proud of the fact that it's our party. I don't know if people but, believe that, though. Well, but it's true. <laughs> like, I, I think mean, that I honestly the, think that people's belief in that as a first principle. I'll give you a great example of it. I'll give you two great examples of it. OK, one, um, we just dramatically lowered prescription drug costs, out-of-pocket prescription drug costs for millions of Americans in the Medicare program by saying that you're, that you're limited to $2,000 to what you're going to have to pay in a year. And if you're a diabetic on insulin shots to $35 a month, that's going to save a lot of my constituents thousands and thousands of dollars a year. And we were able to save billions of dollars while we did it. How did we do that? Well, we repealed a GOP special interest provision that Billy Towson, as chair of the Energy and Commerce, had slipped in, which said the government in the Medicare program cannot negotiate with Big Pharma for lower drug prices. In other words, it was corporate socialism yeah. where they got to dictate to the government and to the people what the prices would be. We just finally, after 10 years of struggle, overturned that, and we got Republicans campaigning all over America to repeal what we just did in order to save billions of dollars and to lower everybody's prescription drug costs. It's the same thing with infrastructure. You know, I sat there for four years under Donald Trump. They had an infrastructure day. They had an infrastructure week. They had an infrastructure month. They just didn't have an infrastructure bill, you know, and we got the bill done in President Biden's first year. In office. So that's a $1.2 trillion investment in the roads and the highways and the bridges and the ports and the airports and expanding broadband access in rural areas. Um, we did that. We didn't just talk about it. We delivered. And so, look, does anybody think that um, the, it's the autocrats of the world like Vladimir Putin or the kleptocrats like Donald Trump who are going to deliver to the middle class? And they get in and what they do immediately right. is they cut taxes for the wealthiest people That's in society. Right. That's their agenda. And they do it every single time. And you can look at it historically. The middle class in America prospers when Democrats are in control, not Republicans. It's pretty wild. They have I mean, they definitely have been. They haven't sort of led with this, but increasingly the last few weeks, you've heard Republicans starting to talk about if they win the House, mm -hmm. what they'll do. And it's like, hold the debt ceiling hostage, cut social spending, maybe cut Medicare and Social Security if we can, and make the tax cuts permanent is like the guiding North Star. Like when, when everything is wiped away in the end, that's in the dollars and cents um, sense, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. And they want to criminalize abortion at 15 weeks nationally. Kevin McCarthy, the House major the House minority leader who wants to become speaker, um, has come out in favor of criminalizing abortion at 15 weeks. Are they going to pay for all those babies? Exactly. Yeah. And they no, they won't. No, they won't. And they want to ensure that. And, and not only did they say that they want to cut 
programs like Medicare, but that they want to, and Social Security, but that they want to hold the entire United States economy hostage by threatening to not raise the debt limit in order to force President Biden to cut Medicare. And so we want to talk about class issues. You will, I mean, this will be so destructive for all of old, all our older adults in this country. What they've got to do is uh, uh, authenticate their message and their rhetoric where people live, work, and raise their families, often called kitchen table issues. And they've got to compare and contrast life under the authoritarian, bigoted, corporate indentured GOP with life under the Democrats. Uh, For example, 20, 25 million people will get a, a raise to $15 minimum wage under the Democrats. Uh, the GOP is against that. The assault on children by the GOP is absolutely stunning. From not using available Medicaid funds to insure them, to exposing them to hazardous pesticides, and denying paid family leave and sick leave. Uh, the GOP is against that. Uh, the $300 a month uh, child tax credit to 58 million children in our country, cutting poverty, uh, child poverty by a third, uh, was suspended because of GOP opposition in uh, January. And it continues. Uh, voter, uh, voters will be more repressed under the, the GOP. Uh, precinct workers will be more intimidated under the GOP. They're trying to steal the election while they accuse the Democrats of stealing the 2020 election. Uh, in, in area after area, uh, the, the, the Democrats are not rebutting and taking the offensive, which is what politics is all about in an electoral campaign. Uh, the GOP is the party of anxiety, fear, and dread. You can document that from A to Z, uh, and uh, they're not being adequately rebutted. Midnight campaigning, over 25 million workers work the midnight shift. They're ignored by candidates. What the candidates now in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Texas have got to do is campaign all night for all the workers who keep the country going while we're asleep and recognize them, respect them. Uh, They're hospital workers, nursing home, police, fire, emergency people, people working in the midnight shift in in factories. So this report, winningamerica.net, you can get the whole report, is full of the best presentations by 20, uh, 24 civic leaders and advocates who know how to talk to people. They don't stratify people left, right, conservative, liberal, when they advance their causes. All of this is presented to the Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party free. The question is uh, whether they will break through their political and media consultant force field, which keeps them from having input from civic groups, and uh, find all the ways that are very poll-tested, by the way, uh, that will grab the attention of liberal and conservative voters alike. A lot of the issues are boiled down in this report under uh, a two-page 
card, in effect, your choice in 2022 compared the Democrats and GOP, and the GOP is against every one of these, whether it's minimum wage, strengthening gun safety laws, taxing the wealthiest firms and the super rich, guaranteeing freedom and equality for women, ending the dark money and campaigns, providing Medicare for all, raising frozen Social Security benefits, restoring voter rights, funding child care and sick leave, fighting climate violence with renewable energy, reducing skyrocketing drug prices, and increasing funding to prosecute corporate crooks. All of those are opposed by the GOP. So politics is a practice in contrast, and the Democrats have got to get with it and learn how to communicate, especially with millions of blue-collar workers who have deserted the Democratic Party and broken the FDR coalition that won so many uh, elections. It seems winningamerica.net. It's, it seems, Ralph, that um, Democrats are, in some cases, more afraid of being called socialist uh, than they are afraid of uh, than they are afraid of Republicans. Can you respond to that? Yeah, well, that's that's why they they've got to learn how to rebut, and it's not too late in the next two weeks to do that. When they're accused of being socialists, there are three rebuttals. One, oh, you Republicans are against socialism. I know why you're saying that because you hate Medicare, you hate the post office, you hate Medicaid, you hate public drinking water departments, you hate public schools. Uh, you hate Social Security. That's why you're talking socialism. But you are really corporate socialists. You want to bail out every corporation of any size. You, you want to uh, subsidize, uh, hand out all kinds of stuff to corporations in a mockery of your f- so-called free market f- philosophy. The same with uh, defunding the police. The, the, the Republicans are defunding the corporate crime police. And let me tell you, when you're talking about death, injury, and disease, uh, corporate crime towers over street crime. Just think of the opiates and the almost one million Americans who've died from the criminal promotion of the opiates uh, throughout the country. And these corporate crooks got away with it. You get a 90% poll on prosecuting corporate crooks and increasing the, the corporate crime enforcement budget. And the same at the street level. The Democrats are for community policing. They want safer guns. They don't want that many guns on the streets. The Republicans on the on the other side on that. This report, winningamerica.net, is full of the best thoughts of these civic leaders who have helped change America, but have been excluded by the political media consultants surrounding these Democratic candidates because they want the 15% commission on TV, TV ads, and they don't know a ground game from anything. They're not interested in a ground game to get the vote out and to get more voter registration because they don't get a commission on that. Well, Mark Green, um, you have run for office. You're a keen observer of all these races around the country right now, uh, as one after another is now being called, um, uh, you know, a toss-up. What do you think the Democrats are failing to do, and particularly talk about the focus on Donald Trump? Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you, Ralph. Uh, Ralph just— as he has throughout his entire public life, been comprehensive about how the Republicans are blocking Democrats from delivering on um, their wallets and their rights. 
that would be a great starting point at the st- at the beginning of a midterm election that ultimately is about democracy versus fascism. But now in the last two weeks, um, y- y- you got to know how to be rhetorically muscular against the party, the Republicans, who don't hesitate to call Democrats not only socialists, but communists and murderers. And so at this point, uh, Democrats can't flinch at being blunt and reducing their campaigns to one, two, or three major phrases and concepts. Because like it or not, five-second voters, regrettably, have responded to these loaded phrases, so woke, cancel, uh, grooming. Uh, Democrats have better policies. How the hell are they losing to a party with apparently better messages? And so uh, Biden began, Biden, who's been a very good president and wanted to be and has been a uniter, has to rise to the occasion. Not only the civic and public interest groups that Ralph is talking about in our report, but, but the public hears because the White House has a big decibel count when the president says it, then others follow. So there are three uh, topic sentences, basically. The, the, the overall is that the GOP are dangerous extremists who are stealing our freedoms and our wallets. What does that mean? One, Social Security. Public understands that. You don't have to spend a lot of money and time. They want to uh, have annual budgets rather than mandatory funding for Social Security, which means they're going to cut Social Security to you who've been paying in uh, for your entire uh, work life. Second, they're the party of violence and corruption. It's not just January 6th, which they explain away, but uh, their refusal to have adequate gun laws, so we have far more gun murders leading to higher uh, crime, and their assaults, the the MAGA mobs hounding local officials. And uh, so they deploy violence. And while they uh, uh, talk about the language of liberty, they want to ban books and abortion and many voters and trans and marriage equality. So it's Social Security, and they talk liberty uh, but they really are uh, for violence and lawlessness. And third, democracy. Democracy now. I think that's a good phrase. Amy, you've been doing this your whole life, Ralph and I, is, <laughs> as well. The issue is not merely they want to reduce voting, because that's the only way they can win, being a minority party with bad ideas. Connect democracy and economy. Bob Kuttner, an economic writer, in his American Prospect and now in our volume, explains, you know, if you reduce the number of uh, minority voters, then, and then only then, can the majority win when it comes to, gee, why don't we have secure Social Security? Why don't we have more, a higher minimum wage? Why don't we have a more child tax credits? which halves poverty among children. So if you focus voters on three issues where the Republicans are blocking progress and are engaged in violent acts and are undermining a democracy, well, extremism is not patriotism. 
And they have to uh, mobilize all these issues that Ralph listed in ways that the public, uh, the swing public, those who pay little attention to campaigns until now, to get them to turn out uh, and vote. Hey, y'all, let's talk about inflation. I feel like most of us Americans look at inflation the way a dog looks at fireworks. Like, no idea how or why that's happening, but it sure is scary and confusing, and we wish it would stop. So much so that apparently a bunch of us are going to vote Republican over it, something I don't understand. It's hard for me to imagine somebody in Georgia saying with a straight face, you know, I just feel like I ain't got no choice but to vote for the brain-damaged, abusive, Christo-fascist running back. I mean, have you seen the price of eggs? It's wild to me, but people blame the Democrats for it because they're in power. But my question is, what are the Republicans going to do to fix inflation? Like, what is their plan? I feel like if they're being honest, they would say, yeah, we don't really do the whole plan thing. We're more into like uh, rage-fueled obfuscation. You know, stuff like that. Like, they don't plan much. They mostly just froth and agitate. But if you look very hard, you can find their proposed approach to inflation. It's three-pronged. They would repeal Biden's minimum tax on corporations, extend the Trump tax cuts for the wealthy, and curb federal spending, particularly on safety net programs. All right. One by one, all right, repeal the minimum tax on corporations. Did y'all know that while inflation is rising, corporate profits are soaring to record heights? So you might think, okay, well, maybe those corporations can use some of those record profits to offset the rising cost to consumers, to which the corporations would surely respond with a chorus of cartoonishly evil laughter and puff of cigar smoke, right? Like they could be helping right now and they're not. What is giving them a break going to do? All right, related, tax cuts for the wealthy, they're the people least impacted by this problem. Is the GOP really looking at the fact that the cost of everyday goods is out of control and their solution is to give more money to the people who couldn't tell you the price of a gallon of milk if their life depended on it? They want to help the people least impacted and hurt the people most impacted. They want to curb spending on safety net programs. I picture them in some GOP think tank somewhere like... You guys know how the poor and seniors are complaining they can only afford one meal a day because of inflation? Well, I was thinking, what if we just let them all die, right? Like, who's complaining then? Problem solved. (laughs) It's simple stuff, guys. Like, how's this thing going to, any of this going to help? It makes me wonder what their proposed solutions would be to other problems if they took power. Like, based on this, I feel like if you asked them, what are y'all going to do about the opioid epidemic? They'd go, oh, glad you asked. Yeah, first, we're going to deregulate Big Pharma. We're going to send a shitload of cocaine to the cartels, and we're going to close all the rehab clinics in this country, huh? How about that? That's too stupid not to work. Am I right? Oh, also, I almost forgot. It's illegal to be gay again. Happy holidays. Hope you don't get shot. Right, you know what I mean? Like, I know we're all tired of dealing with inflation, but if the Republicans win, we're just going to be dealing with inflation and an authoritarian hellscape. So I'm begging you, don't fall for it.
We've just heard clips today, starting with the PBS NewsHour explaining inflation in the context of corporate price gouging. More Perfect Union looked specifically at the cost of gas, both economically and environmentally. The Intelligence explored the way political polarization casts a political lens on the economy. The Majority Report highlighted Representative Katie Porter's explanation of profiteering being the major driver of inflation. The Damage Report discussed some possible solutions to inflation. All In with Chris Hayes spoke with representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamie Raskin about the economic elements of Democrats' policy platform. Democracy Now! interviewed Ralph Nader, who is campaigning for Democrats for the first time in his life, and Trey Crowder, the liberal redneck, gave his take on the GOP plan to fight inflation. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen diving deep on oil prices and national energy policy. What I always say is that we all want energy independence. The difference is that many of us who advocate for clean energy, we want clean energy independence. We don't want to be beholden to Vladimir Putin or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or any of these countries with the very troubling geopolitics and human rights abuses going on. And unfortunately, if the Republicans are elected, they will take us many steps back, denying the basic science and denying the sort of investment that will be needed uh, not only to protect our environment, but to grow our economy. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Regarding the episode on the UK and neoliberalism, uh, there was this Martin Wolf of uh, Financial Times saying something about uh, the fever of anger captured by Brexiters that could now break, and that the UK doesn't have any obvious fascist or anti-democratic party. The basic social stability uh, will remain, and UK will get uh, back to something more normal. I'd say careful what you wish for. Normal in England is increasing inequality, the eroding of the social structure, increasing focus on individualism and liberalism as opposed to solutions built on community and cooperation. To a degree, maybe worse than any other European country. More like that former colony across the pond. The social stability is that of a very rigid class-based society. Norwegian uh, internationally renowned author Dag Solstad gave a famous interview 32 years ago about uh, football. Uh, that would be soccer to you in the US. He broke out in a rant about England and said, among many other things, the working class in England is oppressed, mistreated, pissed upon, and the only reason you haven't had a socialist revolution is because they have pubs and football. The fact that there is uh, currently no openly ultra-right authoritarian is very false security. Especially if you return to normal and have no uh, justice and community-oriented social democratic answer that can uh, answer to the rightful bitterness and resentment of the downtrodden. I think England has a higher risk of turning fascist than other countries in uh, Northern and Western Europe that have uh, 
pluralistic fauna of parties. The authoritarian impulses are kept down and out of view, yes, but it may be a demagogue uh, taking over the Tories, like in the US, or a demagogue rising outside of the two-party system, and it could happen quite fast. Take a few years of uh, Keir Starmer as a Blair Clinton-type neoliberal shell, and a striking or rhetorical strong figure can take over. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. And thanks to our anonymous, possibly Norwegian, caller for that message. Just a couple of quick thoughts on that topic. I think the clip being referred to in the, in the voicemail was at the end of the show the UK neoliberalism episode. And to me, it definitely cut in at least two ways. I found it darkly amusing that the commentator from a UK perspective was looking for a silver lining and found one by comparing the UK to the US and saying, well, at least we're not in that bad of a situation. So playing that clip on this show, mostly a US-based show, put a slightly different context on that one. And then secondly, I think I may have even made a, a sly comment about that clip that was promising that there was no far-right racist authoritarian movement in, in the UK, to which I added, yet. Because that's the real lesson of, of the era of neoliberalism that we're trying to get across in that episode. Disregard the needs of people at your peril, because it is not so much a question of if but when a society crushed by inequality and gaslighting by neoliberalism will break down and people will turn to authoritarianism to fix all their problems in one fell swoop. And an uh, interesting side note, so I, you know, a few minutes ago I was jotting down some notes for the things that I was going to say today, and I wondered to myself, what is one fell swoop? So I looked it up, and it turns out it comes from Shakespeare, just like every other interesting phrase in our language. It comes from Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 3, where Macduff learns his wife and entire family have been murdered. So here's the line. All my pretty ones? Did you say all? Oh, hell kite. All? What? All my pretty chickens and their dame at one fell swoop? And Wiktionary goes on to explain that the imagery is of a bird of prey, a hell kite, ransacking a whole nest at one blow. And the word fell at the time meant terrible cruel or savage. And so then I thought, wow, that really is a particularly good phrase to describe the destructive force of a fascist regime put into place out of frustration with the status quo and the hope that someone empowered to make swift and terrible change could come in and clean up the whole mess we have going on here. So to any neoliberals out there thinking that the status quo system can be maintained with only a few minor tweaks here and there, perhaps, I say to remember how quickly that slowly boiling anger can be converted into a hellkite with its sights set on your nest. One fell swoop, indeed. And to be clear, that's a warning, not a threat. I'm on the side of avoiding having a 
fascist hellkite swoop down on all of us. I understand that you could take that out of context and make it sound, you know, equally plausible coming from either side of the political spectrum. I mean, the left is nearly as frustrated as the right. However, if the far left takes over, they'll just impose healthcare on everybody and make us all learn real facts about history. If the right gets back into power with their current authoritarian tendencies on full display, it'll be a bird of an entirely different feather. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. of left.com